0: And you'll see in the outline in the bulletin that we're really uh, coming back into the material that we began to think about last Lord's Day. We are living in the last days. Verse 1 tells us, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. We took the time to demonstrate again that the last days refers to the entire period of time between Christ's comings. Between His first and second coming, these are the last days. I'm not going back to Acts 2 or Hebrews 1 today, but simply remind you that we are today, presently, living among this ungodliness described in verses 2 through 5. We're living among such. It is part and parcel of living in the last days. Yes, sometimes there is increasing wickedness and sometimes less public wickedness, but these things, they characterize every generation in the last days. We're told to turn away from such, verse number five. It's a call again to personal separation, to realize that this world will seek to squeeze us into its mold and it is our solemn responsibility to exercise ourselves to personal separation. And yet a call not to be like this is not a call to isolation from this world. Paul will tell the Philippian believers that if they are blameless and harmless in this world without rebuke, they do so living in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. And the word nation there refers to generation. As if Paul is saying to the Philippian believers, you're living in the midst of last day's living. You're living amongst those who love themselves, those who are covetousness and are boastful and pride and they're manifest guilty of all manner of sin. You're living among them, but as you live among them, you shine as lights in the world. Personal separation isn't necessary if we are to shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. Those are the words of Philippians two fifteen and 16. So we live in days when men are guilty of the isms that we saw last Lord's Day. They're guilty of narcissism, the God of self. They're guilty of materialism, the God of money. They're guilty of heavenism, the God of pleasure. They've all manner of false gods. Perhaps chiefly in our day, The God of self rules above the rest. Man is master of his own affairs. And that is held to be sacrosanct. You cannot question that in any way. So we find ourselves living in days when men have misplaced their affection. They love themselves. They love pleasure more than they love God. So we find ourselves seeking to remind each and every one that there is the need, again, to reaffirm our commitment to love the Lord first, to live in this world with God as our chief affection. So there is that general detail here, this catalogue of rebellion, founded on the issue of love, not for God, but for other things. And so today we move on to what I've termed the particular concern so, again, in your outline, we're head, main heading point two, and then B under that main point two, a particular concern. Two words religious hypocrisy. That is the particular concern that's addressed here in verse number five. And what you see here is that one of the features of the last times, these last days, is the presence of individuals in the church who are not genuine. They're described as having the form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. It is one of the manifestations of the last times. Just as blasphemy is, just as violence is or injustices, just as pride is, so also part of the manifestation of the last times is this presence of religious hypocrisy in the church having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. I want to look at this from two perspectives. I want to begin by really seeking to demonstrate that this is a true premise, that there are religious hypocrites in the church in the last days. And then I want to look at a particular problem, a specific problem that comes out of that. Think about the structure. I just want to give you some idea of the wider structure here. This is a little bit more complex than perhaps normal. What you're seeing in verses 1 through 5 is this 19-fold description of ungodliness in society. Part of the impact of that is in the church. There are those who are hypocrites. They profess a form of godliness, but they lack the power of that godliness. That's part of the manifestation of this last times. And then out of that particular group, out of that hypocritical group, there are those, verse number 6, who are guilty of being dangerous false teachers. For of this sort, and the likely sense is that applies particularly to verse number 5, as a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof, for of this sort are they which creep into houses. Now you wonder, well, what are they doing in those houses Well, we're told in verse number eight, they are men of corrupt minds who are resisting the truth, reprobate concerning the faith. So they're creeping into houses not to steal the china or to take away the jewels. They're creeping into houses to subvert the faith of some. takes us back to chapter two and the language of the false teachers we spent some time considering before. And so you see the general, you see the ungodly society. And then a a subset of ungodly society is the hypocrite in the church. And then a subset of those hypocrites are these false teachers. And that's how this chapter is going down in Paul's writings. So then we've got to go back and think, well, is it real and true to say that there are hypocrites in the church? Is that what verse 5 actually means? Well, I believe it is really for two reasons. One, as we'll see, the language itself is language that presupposes the thought of hypocrisy. But before that, we should realize that the concept of hypocrites in the church is taught in previous portions of Scripture. When you turn back to the Lord's teaching, Christ himself taught that we should expect to see hypocrites in the church. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, you go back to the Lord's parables of the kingdom. And in Matthew 13, He gives several parables regarding the nature of the kingdom of God in the world. Verse number, four, verse number 24 sorry, gives us the parable, "...likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field." But while man slept, verse 25, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Again, there are some who, what you see here is really a description of the wider world. The field is the world, and it? it is, in a sense, it is. It's describing the work of God in the world. But the point of the parable is not that in the world, there grows up the true child of God and the ungodly. Because what you see in the language of wheat and tares is that the wheat and the tares look very, very similar. And it's hard to discern them apart until you get to harvest time. And so you go on down through the parable, you see in verse number 25, in response to the question, should we pull out the tares, The wise man says, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. There's a similarity here. For, For much of the growth cycle, the wheat and the tares, they look the same. And yet when you come to harvest times, there's a clear differentiation means that the tares can be bundled and burned in the language of the parables describing the end of the ungodly losing their souls in eternal perdition. The burning of the tares. But the wheat gathered into the barns. And so what you're seeing here is not the fact that in the world today there's ungodly people ungodly people. What you're seeing is in the in the visible church, in the visible kingdom, in the world, you see the combination of the true and the false. And the end of the tears indicates that as they grew, they grew as hypocrites in the church. It's not describing those who are saved and then lost. He's describing the fact that they are sowed as tares in the church by the evil one, the devil using this to cause all manner of difficulty in the church. And so he sows the false among the true, and they grow up together in the visible church until the harvest times. I am very, very aware that this message today is not one of those encouraging, uplifting messages, but it's necessary. Necessary for many, many reasons. Necessary that we examine our hearts. And necessary also that we would not be unduly discouraged when at times the false show themselves to be false before the harvest time. You also see it not only in that parable. Christ also taught the same in Luke chapter 8. Turn across to Luke chapter 8, which of course is the accounting of the parable of the sower. Again, another sort of kingdom parable. Look, chapter eight. Again, I could have looked at Matthew or Mark, but I I turn your attention here because Luke is the one that gives us the differentiation between the various types of soil, emphasizing in verse fifteen that the good ground hearer is someone who hears the word in a good, an honest, and a good heart. There's only one type of soil here that is a good and an honest heart. And, of course, we just read Jeremiah 9, 17. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, so a good and honest heart only comes by the grace of God. So the fourth soil here is the only soil that is genuinely converted and knows the Lord, and they bring fruit with patience, with endurance. But the two previous soils, verse 13 and 14, are described as those who hear, verse 13, and receive the word with joy, and then verse 14, those among the thorns, are those which hear and go forth. So both 13 and 14, the rocky ground hearer and the thorny ground hearer, they have for a season responded seemingly positively to the word of God. And they grow in that regard for a season. We're not told how long. We're not told is it for a day or a week or a year or 10 years or 15 years. But the Lord himself is telling us to expect this reality. That there are those who will come into the church and they'll be the most enthusiastic for a season. And then they come and they fall away. Well you say well they were never saved. I say Yes. But the very point is that for the time in which they were responding, they showed the appearance of those who were converted. They grew for a time, it seemed to be so positive. But then their subsequent action demonstrates that they did not have the root of the matter within them. And the point is that for a season, they will seem to be real, but then subsequently prove themselves to be false. There's a lack of... Of real change. I would say here, I'm not suggesting for a second that hypocrites are not sincere at a certain point in time. This is, we, we, we so often think of hypocrisy as being a deliberate action, a determination, you know, a, an attitude of the will within yourself, I am going to pretend to be something I'm not. Does that happen in the church? Absolutely. Absolutely. There are those who, for various reasons in the course of church history, have deliberately pretended to be Christians for a particular agenda. Children do it to please their parents. Workers do it to curry favor with their employer. Politicians do it to get votes. There's all manner of occasions Again, those are generalities. They're not every situation, every child, every employee, every politician. That's not the point. But there are those who, for their own personal agenda, will absolutely pretend to be something that they're not. And they do so in a calculated fashion. But that's not all. There are some who have this genuine spiritual experience, as they see it, of joy. And for a season, they are sincere in their attempt to walk with God. But it's not reality. There are some who are deceivers, but there are some also who are deceived. And we see the Lord teaching here the presence of hypocrisy in the church. But not only does the Lord teach it, Paul also implies it in his exhortations. Turn to Romans chapter 12, please. Because you see in Paul's exhortations to the churches he himself is presuming the reality here. Romans chapter 12, verse number nine, the apostle says this let love be without dissimulation. Now the word there, the two words without dissimulation, is in the original, the the Greek word an hypocritos, without hypocrisy, without pretending. And the idea here is let your love be sincere. Again, the hypocrites I've said before here were those in the, in the Greek world who performed with a mask. They'd be in the theater, they'd put a mask on, they'd pretend to be something they were not for the purpose of the, of the theater production. And Paul is telling Christians, don't be like that. Don't pretend to be something you're not. May your love in the church be genuine. But what does that presuppose? The potential that within the church there are those whose love is not genuine. That there are those who are not the real deal in the church, and they're part and parcel, even of the church here in Rome. You turn across then finally to first Timothy chapter one. Taking our time, heading back towards uh, again Second Timothy, First uh, Timothy chapter one, though, and the verse number five. Paul, in dealing with the purpose of God's loss, is this the end, the purpose, the aim, the objective of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart? What is the end for which we are made? It is to glorify God and to love our neighbor. The purpose of the commandment is to love out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. In the same word, this idea of a genuineness, a sincerity in faith, out of which then comes love for the brethren. But again, it's presupposing the reality that within the true church, there are those who in the last days will not be genuine. It's a Very, very sobering reality. So if that's the case, if we're arguing here, the presence of hypocrites in the church arguing because of parallel verses, well, what about the language used in Second Timothy itself? The words used here also are consistent with this concept that there can be hypocrites in the church in the last days. Verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Here again, we've got to be very careful what we mean here. It's one of these phrases that we can just say, well, it means this without trying to undergird and prove what it actually means. Form certainly refers to this Appearance, the idea of godliness. But what is godliness? Well, godliness is used predominantly in the pastoral epistles. It's also used by James and Peter. But the vast, vast majority of times this word is used in the original is in 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. So let's look at some of these together. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 2. First Timothy 2, verse 2. Here, of course, the context is praying for authorities, for kings and for all that are in authority, that the believers, the Christian, the church may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. You see immediately there, there is a distinction drawn between godliness and what we might term Christian integrity. You see, your immediate immediate assumption may be that to be godly and to know godliness is simply to live a Christian life. But it's not. The term is more narrow than that. And you see here a distinction drawn between godliness and honesty in this Christian life. Then turn across to 1 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. And we're told, Paul tells Timothy, refuse profane and old wise fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise prove little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. A couple of things there. Godliness is indispensable to true salvation. So while I say that it is, it is narrower than the Christian life, it's not optional. Godliness is necessary to live unto eternal life. Not that we earn eternal life by godliness, but that those who have eternal life are godly in this regard. That they know godliness. There's no such thing as someone who has life in Christ who is not manifestly godly in this regard. It's also the case here that godliness can be increased. We can exercise ourselves unto godliness. It's not a static matter. It's not like your justification. You cannot be more accepted by the Lord in that sense. It's final. Godliness is something that allows for maturity and for increase. Then turn to chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. Here you see how this godliness comes about. Again, the false teacher, if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome, healthy, sound words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. In other words here, what you're seeing is that godliness is produced as the gospel lives in your heart. The truth of Christ lives in your soul, and the outcome of the gospel in your heart is a godliness. That's the idea here. You get a similar idea over in Titus chapter 1. Titus 1 verse 1, he refers to the truth which is after godliness. That's Titus 1 verse 1. And so you see just in that very quick overview of some of the verses that are used here, you see that godliness arises in the heart of someone who's quickened by Christ, eternal life. Godliness comes in such a state. Those who know the Lord are godly. It is promoted and encouraged by Christian doctrine and truth. And it is distinct from a life of Christian integrity. Again, I want to show that again. Please turn back to 1 Timothy 6. I'm going to show you this. 1 Timothy 6, verse 11. Where Paul tells Timothy... Thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. So you see, godliness is distinct from these other things. It's not just this overarching term that describes the Christian life. It is something that is particular within the context of Christian life. As endurance is, or meekness is, or love, or faith is, so also is this practice of godliness. You'll see Peter also. does the same. Let me show you this also, Second Peter. Appreciate your patience. Today's been a day of love texts. Bible class, and now also here in the morning service. 2 Peter chapter 1. And verse number 6, you will see that godliness is again an additional Christian grace to knowledge, temperance to temperance, patience to patience, godliness. Okay, so it's, it's not the sum total of Christian living. It's a particular part of the Christian experience. Second Peter 3 and the verse 11 also. In light of the Lord's return, what are we to be? We're to be people marked by all holy conversation and godliness. There's Christian living and there's godliness. There's the external obedience to the law of God and there's this godliness. So what is it? Well, I think the fact that the, God, the writers here, Paul and Peter, they highlight external obedience as distinct from godliness, I think it indicates that godliness refers to an inner reality, an inner spirituality. And so the old writers refer to godliness with the word piety. Again, that word is fallen out of fever. If you're pious, that's often used as a pejorative term. Look at that pious person there, holier than thou. It's used in that sense. But piety in the traditional sense involves an inner spirituality, an inner awareness of the fear of God, living in devotion to the Lord, in love for the Lord. And so in the context of the last days, There are those whose love is misplaced. But there are some who have the appearance of being lovers of God. But it's not real. They have the form of the spiritual life. They have the external appearance of the internal reality. A form of godliness see, if godliness is an internal reality, then how does it show itself externally? How can you have the appearance of that which is internal? Have you asked that question yet? Well, you have now. If this is this internal spirituality, well, how can you look like that? Well, because in every Christian grace, what is true in our hearts is manifest in some way. There are the external forms of godliness. And what are they? Things like prayer. Genuine prayer is a heart reality. Godliness is a good thing. But there are those who have the form of godliness. They seem to be spiritually minded and they seem to engage in prayer, but it's not real. It's not the real deal. Singing. There are some and they, they will sing in public worship that they know the joy of the Lord in their heart, and it's, it's exuberant in their praise. See, genuine praise will only truly come from the heart, a heart that loves the Lord. But there can be a form of that, a pretense of that. When the genuine is there, there will be joy, but it's possible to have the pretense. Think of a desire for the Word of God. The form of godliness will come in a sense in which people who, uh, uh, again, are seeking to portray this spirituality, they will have an attentiveness to the Word of God. They'll have a, an eagerness in the Word of God. They'll might even be those who are in the pew, and they're, they're sitting in the very front of the edge of their seats, and they, they're, they're waiting to hear what comes next. See how difficult it is? Because I would never want to discourage that. I would never want you not to be attentive and eager to hear what the Word of God says to your soul. But I'm also very aware that there is the possibility of this form of godliness. I can't judge the heart. I can't judge your hearts. You can't judge my heart in many ways. But externally, the godly man will pray and sing and listen. But there can be a form of these things. These things are right and proper. You want... In your heart, what is true in your heart, you want it to manifest itself in public forms. See, I wonder, I wonder does Hebrews chapter 6 describe this form of godliness? Turn across Hebrews chapter 6. Again, one of these most difficult portions of Scripture. I have the warning, verse 4, it is impossible if they shall fall away, verse 6, to renew them again unto repentance. So the scripture here again of those who for a season show joy, who for a season go forth, who are like the tares among the wheat, all seems well. But it's not well. But verse 4 describes what they've experienced. They were once enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and may partake of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. Again, I understand this is a very, very difficult phrase or difficult passage. There are two possibilities. Paul is describing those who were hypocrites and apostates in the church. There are those who have experienced these spiritual realities. They come to public worship, and they enjoy the presence of God in the public worship. They they taste the Lord in that sense. They're here amongst the people of God, and they realize God's among you, and they enjoy that. And they're blessed by that experience, but they fall away. They've made this profession. It's also possible that what's involved here are those, and Paul is warning them, hypothetically about the danger of this, but he says in verse number 9, but beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. So he's given a hypothetical situation. I don't know. I think the likelihood is he's describing the genuine possibility of people being blessed in a church and yet falling away and apostatizing from the faith. These are real scriptures with real power upon our hearts again today. Experiencing the divine, in the church for a season, a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. You see, back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, you've got to deal with the second part of this. They have this form of godliness, but they deny the power. What is the power of godliness? Well, what does godliness do And someone who genuinely knows this godliness in their heart. What if someone is the real deal? And they they live in the fear of God. And they love the Lord. And they reverence the Lord. And they they have this genuine inner spirituality. They realize they take every step they take before the Lord. And their chief aim is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What happens in such a person? Other lives are not the same. Godliness has a tremendous impact on your life. Let me ask you a question. Just think of your own testimony. Some of you have been saved for many, many years. Think of the seasons when you walk closest to the Lord. Be honest about it. It waxes and wanes. There are times of tremendous nearness to the Lord, and there are other times you feel more distant. But in those times when you're working close with the Lord, how does it impact the rest of your life? You're a better husband. You're a better wife. You're a better employee, a better employer. You're a, you're a better believer in the church sense. You come to church with more happiness. You come and you worship with more zeal. Godliness in your internal man has a profound effect in your life. But there are those here Who put on this form of godliness, but their lives are not impacted. See, what do you expect? The godly person, in this sense, is a person in whom God is at work. Only God's grace produces genuine godliness. And if God's at work in that individual, then we expect to see God at work. We expect to see God-likeness. Be holy, for I am holy. You see, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And we often think of that power in several ways. It is the power of God against sin's condemnation. You can have a cleanse, conscience. It's the power of God against sin's curse, namely death when we expect to rise again in glory and the resurrection. But the gospel is also the power of God over sin's control. God works in us freeing us, godliness leads to that. You see, look at Titus chapter 1, please. In the context of these pastoral epistles, Titus chapter 1 demonstrates this. Verse 15. Unto the pure all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God. A form of godliness. But in works they deny Him being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. Spiritual people. Living lives of immorality, perhaps for a season undercover, but eventually manifested to the point that their hypocrisy is then exposed. The gospel is not meant to seal for us a place in heaven without having any impact in our lives. Titus chapter 2 tells again, verse 11... The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Our lives are changed. Jude, in verse number 4, again, has the same issue at stake. Jude, verse number 4, it says this, For there are certain men crept in unawares, they're in the church, who were before of old ordained this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you think how easy it is in these last days with all manner of manifold ungodliness, how easy it is for people to argue, I'm a spiritual person but they live like the world. Just in practical terms, ungodliness becomes so popular and acceptable that the presence of the church is not surprising. And so there's increasing potential for people to be in the church with a pretense of spirituality, but delighting in the sins of this world. I thought I'd get a lot further tonight today. Better stop about now. Let me just close by making some points of application. Sensitive soul, do not presume that you're a hypocrite. It's a very dangerous point when you come to a sermon like this that each and every one of you presume. Is it I, Lord? Am I one of these hypocrites? Let me encourage you. If you're asking that question, the likelihood of you being hypocrite diminishes greatly. Because asking the question implies at least in part that you have a sincere desire to be pleasing to the Lord. And that sincere desire to be sincere is produced by God's grace. And so the burden, the burden, am I a hypocrite, is normally not the experience of those who are hypocrites. Normally. And there are some exceptions. So do not be discouraged, your sensitive soul. When you look at your own heart and you see remaining sin, remember the Apostle Paul was no hypocrite. He also knew the reality and the burden of remaining sin. And yet his faith was grounded on the certainty of Christ. And so he understood that his standing in the church was not because he was sinlessly perfect. His standing in the church was because Christ was sinlessly perfect. And that's what he stood upon. And so do not look at your remaining sin and therefore say to yourself, I must be a hypocrite. That's not what this is saying. But it is perhaps a warning to some of you here today. Because if you're being honest, you must confess, the gospel has made no impact on my life. It hasn't changed my desires. It hasn't changed my understanding. Hasn't changed my affections. I come to church. I don't want to appear that I'm not what I've said I am. But truth be told, the gospel has made no impact on my life whatsoever. Please understand the words, no impact whatsoever. Not a little impact to some degree, but no impact whatsoever. Do you realize that now is a time when you're confronted by the power and the glory of God? And that you are just one of these people, these 19-fold manifestations of the last days, that you are part and parcel of that. And it's time for you to be honest before the Lord and do business with God today. I am so slow to preach this sort of stuff. When I was first in the pastoral ministry, I preached it all the time. I had this conviction in my heart. Most people are probably hypocrites. And then over years, I came to realize most people aren't hypocrites. They're genuine. And they're struggling with sin and battling with a, a conscience of sin in their hearts. And so you preach against hypocrisy, and you you do you dig, up the, you dig up the strength of the, of the sensitive soul. And so I'm slow to preach it. But it's here in verse number 5 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I cannot ignore it. So realize, please don't be discouraged. But examine yourself. And also finally, realize that church struggles do not prove a church in crisis. We think that sometimes. People go and people leave. Several of you, in your own mind right now, you can think of multiple people who seem to walk with God for a season. And they seem at this point to making shipwreck of their faith. Please note, I'm using participles here. Present. They seem to be making shipwreck of their faith. The end is not told yet. But it appears for now that things are not good. You think to yourself, well, there must be some problem in the church. No, not necessarily. There may be, but not necessarily. These are things that are part and parcel of last day's living. Christ told us, Paul tells us, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Finally, 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 praise God for his work in your life, dear child of God. Those of you who do realize that God has done a wonderful thing in your life. It's all of God, all of grace.